Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrowcasting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Fourth of February, Friday. The thermometer falls with the waking sun and the spirit seems to shrivel with the cold. Then the beerly rooks take flight from their inky roost. Assured blue-black wings beat the blood-red raging dawn. The body feels smaller, the spirit larger. This is the Narrowboat Erica, narrowcasting into the dark on a wild, wet and windy night. And there's a strong southwesterly that's raging up the canal, that's blowing showers of rain that hiss across the surface of the water. It's not the kind of night to be stopping out, so come inside. You're always welcome, and the kettle's on, and the biscuit barrel is full. Make yourself comfortable. And welcome aboard. February has started rather in the pattern of January with a bit of every kind of weather on offer. From days with bone-chilling, damp, cold winds to bright, frosty starts and silky, warm days full of spring's promise. And in fact, even today we started off with a rime of frost under a sky that was walled with dark grey slabs of cloud. And the wind was achingly cold and raw. And soon then the rain came sweeping in. It was a short shower, but it was wet enough for Penny to decide that the protracted examination of sniffing along the canal-side vegetation was not as interesting as a warm, dry boat and a bowl full of breakfast. So we came back quite early. And poor old Penny's back legs have been suffering a bit recently with the, the winter weather, and she much prefers now to lie in the dry and the warmth of the boat in front of the stove. And here a a couple of boats have moved on, but the canal is still pretty much quiet, and not even the day boats have been coming past on their way down to Wilmcote and back. And the Canal and River Trust are beginning to dredge this section. And last year, silt was a fairly significant issue, particularly on the locks and under the bridge holes, where silt tends to accumulate. And so now there's a dredger and its butty that's currently moored just down from us. And life carries on in and around the water, a kaleidoscope of duck activity. And I've noticed one or two making tentative explorations of potential nesting sites. Pairs, trios in their aerial duels and sometimes larger groups of five or seven crisscross above our heads. And the swans continue with their daily routines, 
Cyril the junior seems to be spending more and more time on his own foraging, learning those skills that he'll need once he leaves his parents. Carl told me that he'd seen Cyril fly, which is really good, because as the family are here pretty much on their own in a relatively large territory, there's little need for them to fly. And so Cyril hasn't been gaining that essential skill. And apparently, when Carl watched him take off once, he only just managed to clear the hedgerow trees. We're all waiting for him to be rejected by his parents, although he was a late hatching, so might still be viewed as being too young. Or perhaps it might be that his parents just feel that there's enough room here to accommodate another full-grown swan. We wait with our fingers crossed. It's been lovely this week to catch up with some of you and to hear about your lives and what you're doing. And thank you particularly to Jeff Taylor who contacted me through the NOSW pod website. Thank you so much for taking time, Jeff, and for your kind words. And I'm so pleased that you're enjoying the podcasts and find them helpful. Thank you. It was also lovely to hear from Alistair Anderson again. And thank you. Those pictures are wonderful. And I particularly love that one of the teal coming into land. That's quite spectacular. And the photographs of the shovelers are quite striking too, aren't they? Strange looking birds, aren't they? With their, their sort of elongated, flattened beaks. And I can imagine that the coots are quite robust in their interactions with each other. They seem to be little birds with large amounts of character. And I wouldn't be surprised, I think you're right, I wouldn't be surprised at all if they're about establishing territory and mates at this time of year. And your comments about last week's episode featuring Dylan Thomas made me smile and that how your literary education included just one Thomas and that was a blue steam locomotive with the number one painted on the side. Yeah, I, I think many of us will relate to that. And I'm, I'm really glad as well to hear that your passion for steam and all things railway is still as strong as it was when I knew you in your, your youth. And also in relation to last week's episode, hello to Helen Bygrove on Facebook, and thank you so much for your comments. And while I'm here, I must just inform people that I'm finding Twitter almost impossible to use in these last few days. For some reason, it's refusing to load any images, and on some of my devices, I can't even open links uh, and get onto Twitter. I spent all morning emptying caches and reloading apps and to no avail. So I don't know what's happened. I've run out of ideas about anything I can do. All the instructions seem to be referring me to menus and tasks bars which don't appear on my laptop or on my mobile devices. So I am really at a bit of a loss. So if I am a bit quieter on Twitter, then I apologize. And, and that's why. Please do feel free to keep contacting me. I really enjoy hearing from you. And you can do that either using the, the normal social media routes. 
or using the contact form or voicemail on the NOSW pod website or emailing me directly using the nighttime on stillwaters at gmail.com. The links are in the program notes below. And if you are on the NOSW pod website, then it'd be really helpful if you could either rate or leave a review there by clicking on the review page. It's really easy to do. Uh, Or if you have an Apple or a Spotify account, then you can just click on that link and leave the review or, or rating there. I'm told that it's really helpful and quite important in relation to the algorithms that podcast directories use. So thank you. On the back of the storms that rolled in on last week's wolf-toothed northerlies, a solitary widgeon appeared on the wind-sung waters of the moorings. He's a little smaller than the other ducks, a trim, neat figure. His body, the colour of arctic skies, light greys and whites, a flush of orangey-pink on his breast. His head and neck, a beautifully warm, rich, ruddy brown, the colour of chestnut glow when they appeal fresh from their spiky cases. A yellow lemon stripe on his forehead gives him a cootish appearance. A colourful, dandified cousin without the chippy assertiveness. The coot stripes can lend the impression of a frown and aggression. But this stripe simply accentuates the curve of the head, offering a similar profile to the rook. And I find there is something rather appealing, almost touchingly friendly about the round skull of a bird. Perhaps it's because that was the way I drew birds when I was a lad. Tennis ball round heads, round eyes, and a beak stuck on it. Journey's field guide to British birds lists them as a bird of the north, northern Scandinavia, Russia, Iceland. Distribution maps show their range leading high up into the Arctic north, although they often migrate southward during winter. And they're not uncommon here, although more usually found in Scotland or along the east-facing coasts. But it is unusual to see a solitary bird like this. Ornithologist Rob Hume writes of their tendency to prefer the company of dense flocks and describes how the widgeon form close flocks on water while feeding, advancing across salt marsh or meadow in tight-packed masses. Such a flock looks richly colourful and adds to the effect with their constant loud calls. And he goes on to observe that Widgeon are generally shy and fly off when approached. Large numbers forming wheeling flocks circling above a marsh or heading for the safety of a reservoir. Hume also notes that, unusually, when feeding on the ground, the entire flock will all face in the same direction. And that great old naturalist and countryman, B.B., wrote fondly about Ridgin. He describes how on one bitter winter's night on the marshlands on the east coast of Scotland, 
The little widgeon were burrowing about in the grass like moles, and sometimes were barely visible. The cockwidgeon is surely one of the prettiest of our ducks, but he also notes their companionable nature on wing and land, and how they prefer to congregate and forage or fly in great companies. But our strange little visitor from the north is certainly on his own here. Like the coot, who shared the splintered winter's ice with us last year, and who still, if it's the same one, pops up from time to time. But for him there's no assuring bustle and whistling company of the flock for our small northern visitor. Neither are there the wheeling flights of his own kind, above the great stretches of mud flats, speared with samphire, lacy with pillows of sea lavender, of those coastal estuaries and salt marshes, under those great rolling eastern skies. What was his journey? How hard did he struggle to keep up with his flock? What did he feel when they drifted out of sight beyond the strength of his exhausted wings? Did he cry out on those bullying, indifferent winds for his voice only to be turned back on himself, racing away from safety and home? He would have felt that drive to regain the flock, the instinct burning in his tired wings. But how did he process that? Would we have been able to recognize it with the emotions that boil in the cauldron of our own lives? The ducks would have already paired as he left behind his mate. Or is he a juvenile? as yet unbonded, and perhaps that why he might have been closer to the edges of the flock as it wheeled on the stormy wind, and was therefore more vulnerable to be swept off. The blessing is that he is, if not accepted by the mallards here, he's certainly tolerated. I've not seen any attempts to drive him off or any bullying apart from the usual squabbles around food or territory, and that's nothing any more than normal flock behaviour here. And he keeps himself to himself, but there's no problems of being in the vicinity of the others. Yesterday he was foraging the grass in a pack, and the mallards seemed to treat him as they do the moorhens that scuttle around them, almost unnoticed. but he is alone, and that must be hard, and as far as I can detect, he's not showing any signs of stress behaviour, seems relaxed. Like most non-humans, he has the advantage of us. We have become conditioned so much that if something's not right, we need to change it. He just simply rolls with the changes. Adapt, change, flight of feet and wing, adapt to suit the new conditions and get on with being alive. And so, for a while, we have with us here 
a little stranger. Stefan Buxaki's Fauna Britannica lists local names given to the Wigin. Unsurprisingly, most of them relate to the north or eastern regions, although a couple come from Ireland. And also, unsurprisingly, a number refer to the bird's appearance. Hugh probably refers to the distinctive whistle of its call. Bald pate, cockwinder, cockwinder, easterlings, golden head, grass hue, lady duck, lady fowl, pandle hue, hue duck, fewer, whim. Whistler, Winder, Yellow Paul. Bukzaki notes that they have been called widgeons, sometimes spelt with a DG, since the early 16th century, and the name is probably imitative of their call, and he goes on to observe, probably because they were easy prey for duck hunters, the name also came to be used in the 18th century to mean a stupid person. The Wigeon's scientific name, Mareka Penelope, points to links with mythology. Its species name, Penelope, relates to Homer's Penelope, the long-suffering and faithful wife of Odysseus. In Greek mythology, Penelope's parents were the prince Icarus of Sparta and the nymph Pereboa. And when she was born, Peraboa, her mother, hid her infant daughter as soon as she was born, knowing that Icarus had wanted a son. And as soon as Icarus discovered the baby girl, he then threw her into the sea to drown. However, a family of ducks rescued her and fed her. Taking this to be an omen, Icarus then named the child Penelope, after the Greek word Penelops, meaning duck and raised her as his favourite child. But there are also other legends that are linked to the Wigeon. Armstrong's Folklore of Birds associates the Wigeon with the Seven Whistler myth. And this myth crops up across Britain and Europe. It's complex and pluriform and, for us, more frustratingly, undefined. In some places it's believed to be the souls of unchristened babies, whilst others link it to the wandering Jew mythology, while others identify it as an omen of coming death. And Armstrong notes that after a colliery disaster at Wigan, people reminded each other that the seven whistlers had been heard. And in the Lancashire mines, the miners used to refuse to enter a pit after hearing the birds believing that a calamity was imminent. And in South Shropshire and Worcestershire, the seven whistlers are said to be six birds in search of another. And when they find him, it will be the end of the world. Tonight, out there, in the thick of this February darkness, 
is our solitary, timid little widgeon, the seventh bird for which his six brothers are searching. Oh, I love a myth in which the end of the world pivots not on some cataclysmic human action or the apocalyptic sweep of the divine hand, but the culmination of an avian drama that has nothing to do with the theatrical stage constructed by human thought upon which we strut and fret our stuff. And of all the birds, it is the little widgeon, timid, shy, diminutive, delicately plucking the grass stems beside the water, a bird few probably have even heard of, a bird whose name had become used as a term of abuse and denigration. Will the reconciliation of this little bundle of life with its companions really signal the end of the world? But you know, there's a part of me that dares to hope so. That the madness we are creating and seem to be so utterly incapable of finding the will, or, or is it the courage, to stop it, won't be the cause of the final cataclysmic apocalypse. But instead, our fate hangs on the thread of an altogether different drama that's being played out across all creation. Six small ducks, thrown across the unforgiving dark green arctic skies, simply looking for the seventh that the end of the world will not come about through the willful ignorance of madness and hubris, or the clunk of a divine gavel of judgment ringing through the disapproving silence of some heavenly court, but that the end of the world will be a glorious culmination of the healing of seven duck-shaped souls that are spent an eternity crying out on the wild northern winds the heartache of their grief for a sundered relationship and their lost companion. A lifetime seeking for the healing of restoration for the one who was lost to rejoin them. My God, who amongst us cannot see that if the world must end, let it end like that? A lost duck restored and welcomed back to his flock. And what if the ancient writer of the book of Job was right all along, that after all this, creation wasn't really all about us humans after all, that there are other stories, other dramas, other plans to be unfolded of which we know nothing and have nothing to do with and that the culmination of this world will not be in a cataclysm of fire, and certainly not a whimper, but with six little witchin finding their lost friend. Oh, yes, if there has to be some culmination of all this, 
if there has to be some teleological imperative underlying this green and blue globe cast loose into space, let it be this. Let our worlds come to an end like that, a cataclysm of joy and restoration. And if, by any remote chance, the seven whistlers are those seven little widgeons. May their voice sound to us, not like some omen of doom, but of hope. Hope that one day this world will end, not in devastation and despair, but in reunion and restoration. For listen, on the soft wind swells of the night, listen to those distant whistles. Can you hear them? And isn't there something strangely familiar about that haunting call? For isn't that song that they sing also our song? the cry of our hearts calling out into the darkness. Blown on the back of a cold north wind, our wordless ache for those we have lost, the lives we have left, to be reunited once more with those we've lost and still miss. Sundered relationships to be healed, a cry to be welcomed home with outstretched arms. Out there, tonight, the little widgeon dozes alone in the dark under a night sky of racing clouds. Sleep well, little soul, and may some day your cry be heard and answered. And may you too sleep well tonight, and may the cries of your heart, borne on the night wind, be also heard and answered. This is the Narrowboat Erica, signing off for the night, and wishing you a very restful and peaceful night. Good night. Temperature outside 7.6 degrees Inside 25 degrees Humidity 73% Dew point 4 degrees Wind direction, west-southwest. Wind strength, 23 miles per hour. Barometric pressure, 1009.5 falling. Cloud cover, 100%. Cloud ceiling, 1000 Eight hundred feet.
precipitation 1.78 millimeters moon phase 25.3% waxing crescent day length 9 hours 20 minutes sunset 1702 sky casting 740